Stephen Reichland. Boy, I am really excited about this. I'm really, really happy to meet you. Stephen Reichland, uh, I, I don't know why I do these introductions because I assume the people who are interested in watching or listening to this podcast, this particular episode, know what they're in for. Stephen Reichland is the grandmaster of all things cooked on grills, barbecues, and smokers. He's the author of 31 books, writer for all the fancy publications like uh, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, Esquire, and many others. Creator and host of more TV shows about smoking and grilling that even seems possible. I don't know how you know where you're going from one day to the next. And you are the one person I I, I would never invite to my home for barbecued ribs or a nice tri-tip because of the intimidation factor. <laughs> I imagine, do you get invited out to people's homes for uh, for a little meal? Uh, not as often as I wish I would. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I have a friend um, whose husband is a restaurateur, and uh, he's quite well known in in his city. And uh, I asked her that once. I said, "Do you guys ever get invited to other people's homes for dinner?" She said, "Now that you mentioned it, no, not really." <laughs> yeah, and the intimidation factor—it's really quite silly because I'm a very uh, gracious host and I'm very appreciative. And you know what? Most people are great cooks. You know, at least when they have company, they can. They can bring out one dish that the one dish they shine in. So, yeah. you know, uh, but at any rate, um, I don't know yeah. why we're always we, we always feel that we have to we have to impress if nobody else than ourselves in terms of our uh, ability to, uh, you know, produce something that's just right. My wife is always telling me that I'm too critical of my own cooking and I do most of the cooking in our home because. Uh, I work very early in the morning and she works until about six o'clock in the evening. So I typically prepare dinner. And if I use, if I'm using the grill, using the smoker or something, I'm always like, ah, you know, these ribs are a little dry. I didn't, I didn't get the right ones. Or I, uh, you know, I think there's something wrong with the wind that was blowing today or something like that. She says, it tastes like this, like the last group that you did. So I don't know, maybe we're a little too critical of ourselves. So as I was stalking you on the internet to prepare for the conversation, although I do have several of your books, I was surprised to learn that you you were really uh, apparently more interested in writing about food to begin with and doing TV about food rather than becoming a chef or or certainly or the grand poobah of barbecue. Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, writer is what's on my passport as... Uh as my occupation <clears throat> and um, that's how I think of myself. And, you know, if I, I, I might have a day where I'm doing TV and I'm doing interviews or public speaking, but if I haven't written something, I don't feel like I've done an honest day's work. How did that come about for you? How did you, how, how did you, where did you get your interest in doing food in particular? Well, you know, I have a degree in French literature uh, and uh, I guess I took a wrong turn, but uh, I've uh, always been a food writer. I've uh, always loved writing. I've always loved food. When I was growing up, you know, I uh, my mother was a terrible cook. She was a ballet dancer. So in some, <laughs> some sense, uh, with self-defense. Uh, in college, all of my jobs, you know, to earn uh, extra money were food-related jobs. Uh, after I graduated with my degree in French literature, I won what was called a Thomas J. Watson Fellowship foundation fellowship. Uh, Tom Watson founded IBM. These were fellowships that were created in his honor. Um, 
to guess do what I guess what we would call today soft diplomacy. Uh, send bright young Americans around the world to study uh, topics that they're passionate about, uh, not necessarily academic. And I had proposed to study medieval cooking in Europe. Why medieval cooking? Yes, I why? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I wrote my thesis uh, on a medieval French poet named Christine de Pizan, who incidentally turned out to be Europe's first feminist, but that sort of... Uh, uh, that message passed right by me being a clueless 21-year-old. However, when I was doing my research, I came across a medieval cookbook in the uh, library stacks at Reed College. And it's, for some reason, it blew, me, uh, it blew me away. You know, here was a book written in the language of Chaucer with uh, letters that some of which we don't even use anymore in English. Uh, and written was the, really the name of the game because, you know, prior to Gutenberg, all manuscripts, whether culinary or otherwise, were written by hand. So I'm looking at recipes that were 700 years old, and it, uh, it, it was something about it was absolutely thrilling. And I thought, you know what, I, I'd like to spend a year studying medieval cooking in Europe. So I applied for this uh, Watson Foundation Fellowship. Much to my astonishment, I got it. And that got me over to Europe for what wound up being an 18-month uh, culinary grand tour. And I would spend the mornings, my mornings in uh, the, the great libraries of Paris and London, uh, researching medieval manuscripts. Afternoons, when I was in Paris, I went to a modern French cooking school because a typical medieval recipe read something like, take this, that, and the other and combine in the customary fashion. I didn't know <laughs> what customary fashion was, but I figured if I went to modern French cooking school, that did you have, cool. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did you have, uh, it's just one of my smart ass comments. Did you have uh, uh, ingredients like eye of newt, wart of frog and that kind of thing? No, but there were ingredients I was certainly not uh, familiar with like galangale and cubebs and uh, almond milk and, uh, in the Middle Ages, people, you know, people roasted swans and peacocks. A um, great deal of medieval cooking was, uh, it was very much oriented around uh, pageantry and showmanship. So mm -hmm. they would roast a whole peacock and then stick its feathers back on it and bring it back, bring it. However, you know that little nursery rhyme, uh, four and 20 blackbirds based yeah. on a I did actually find a recipe for how you create a giant hollow pie crust that you could then stuff with live birds. And when you served it, you open the crust and the birds would fly out. So, you know, you gotta remember this was an age before television and social media and, you know, movies and um, entertainment like that was a big, you know, it was a, it was a big deal. So with your passion for learning about food and, and its history and, and culture, uh, where, where in in your interest was the actual doing it yourself, the the preparation and and you know the the reason I guess I'm asking is the reason you didn't uh, have a burning desire to become a chef. Yeah, well, um, you know I love to eat. I mean, I uh, and I was a restaurant critic uh, for Boston Magazine for ten years. So uh, and I even to this day. You know, my wife and I have running arguments. She does not like restaurants. I like restaurants. Uh, she, uh, I, I'm always curious to see the next thing, what the, what the next thing is. And if you love to eat, then, you know, if you want to eat well, you need to cook. And I, I went to two French cooking schools. Um, 
I have taught cooking classes in one form or the other my whole adult life. Uh, now I do uh, a program called Barbecue University, uh, where people come to a luxury resort and learn how to grill and smoke for me. Uh, my shows on PBS are very much teaching shows. You know, I'm not about cursing somebody out or voting somebody off the mountain. You know, I, I really try and give action, useful, actionable information that can make people's culinary lives better. Um, but in terms of working a restaurant, running a restaurant, uh, you know, first of all, it would be over my wife's dead body. So <laughs> the answer to that is no. And saying no, I mean, I might think my, my skills are, you know, my skill set is more verbal and explaining things. Uh, I don't know how good I would be on the line trying to get out 200 dinners on a Saturday night. Yeah. But that being said, I, uh, I finally do have a restaurant experience to, that's uh, uh, under my belt and added to my list of credits. Uh, there's a cruise ship line called Windstar, and there are six small ships. When I say small, typically between 150 and 300 passengers. And on three of those ships, <coughs> we have just uh, finished uh, installing uh, restaurants that are called Star Grill by Stephen Reichland. So um, I, while I do not own them or physically run them, I design the menus and train the staff and go on the ships on a regular basis to make sure the quality is being uh, maintained. That's, ex so that, that's that excellent. May, that, that may be the, uh, the deepest I dip my toe into the restaurant world. That's terrific. I can certainly understand the, uh, the, the problem with act actually having to run a kitchen yeah. Is, is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's a lot. So I can kind of appreciate that. Now, you said, in kind of in passing, I uh, went to a couple of French cooking schools. A couple of French cooking schools. You went to Le Cordon Bleu. I went to Le Cordon Bleu. And, and then uh, there was at the time uh, I was in Paris, there was a new school that opened called La Varenne. Yeah. And La Varenne was uh, named after a famous 17th century uh, French cook who wrote, you know, what many people consider to be the first modern French cookbook. Uh at any rate, Lavarin was just getting started. So I went there. I actually went there for an informational interview with the founder of the school, a woman named Ann Willen, who was writing a book about the history of cooking through its great chefs uh, while I was doing my medieval project. And I left for my uh, I left my one hour interview actually becoming the second employee of the school. And my job was to translate. Uh, the, the chefs were all French. The students were primarily American and English. So I would do simultaneous translations. The chefs would explain in French. I would translate to English. Kind of a digression, I guess. What, 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 you, you, you were born in Japan, raised in Baltimore. Why did you become a Francophile? You know, Not a criticism. Dad, <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. Uh, my dad took me to Paris when I was 16 years old. And it was love at first sight and first bite. I just, uh, I felt like I had come home and this was a place that uh, their, the, their attitudes to our food and their values about food uh, were in sync with mine. And I just wanted to know more. And so I, uh, I came back and went from being a middling student in French to becoming a French literature major in college. Uh, my dad scratched his head, you know, uh, what are you gonna, how are you gonna make a living with a degree in French literature? And it did actually take many, many years for that to happen. But uh, about 10 years I started years ago, I started doing um, TV shows in French on barbecue in uh, Quebec. And I have done, I, I, gosh, I've done, uh, 
a half a dozen series in Quebec, uh, working on uh, lining up a TV show in France right now. So, you know, it's this funny life goes full circle. But uh, fr French has always been, you know, it's always been a big part of my life. Uh, all of my leisurely reading is done in French. I uh, belong to a French, uh, monthly French book club. Uh, and like I say, doing these TV shows in French, that was, you know, that was really a, it's a fun, fun project. I'm actually more comfortable in the air in French than I am in English. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, listen, I love French cooking. Love uh -huh. it. But I, you know, I'm one of those, I have to, when I look at the menu, I have to point at an item, say this, the, uh, um, to the waiter. I'm sorry, there's a, I had a distraction outside. I want this because I don't know how to pronounce it. But besides that, uh, the, all of the the sauces and the garlic and all that stuff is so wonderful. And here I am in Dallas, which nobody nobody travels to Dallas for French cooking or seafood. Nevertheless, um, I thought it was very interesting. And you met um, you met and became friends with Julia Child when you were in France, right? And didn't she give you maybe uh, a primary piece of advice that led to your success? Well, she did, absolutely. She said, uh, pick a topic uh, that uh, a lot of people will be interested in, but take an approach that you and only you can do. Yeah. And so for me, ultimately, you know, it took me 20 years to get around to barbecue. I, you know, I like to joke the barbecue found me, but um, my approach to barbecue, you know, first of all, it was this planet barbecue, this global grilling. And I've circumnavigated the globe four times to study and research barbecue. My books like Barbecue Bible and Planet Barbecue obviously are about global grilling. But whenever I write any book, I mean, the first thing I do is I pack a suitcase and, uh, and travel. So I think that was, uh, and the other thing is, I guess, you know, I've been called the intellectual of barbecue or the intellectual of the grill, but there's a, I'm very interested in um, the history and culture behind barbecue, behind food in general. So I think, you know, I think with barbecue, when I finally came to barbecue, I, I uh, met uh, Julia's uh, two requirements for success. And one of those, again, you know, pick a topic that is a lot of people would be interested in, but take an approach that you and only you can do. And you put yourself in the, on the top of that particular specialty. What you were just talking about is one of the great great things that I love about your books, because while you typically, depending on the particular book and, and its intent, but you typically include lots of recipes, but it's not a recipe book. It's a book about the culture. It's a book about the history of foods and how they're prepared differently, in different regions of the country and uh, in uh, different countries in the world, as you were just saying. Uh, it makes for fascinating reading. You can read it in bed as well as you can read it in the backyard while you're trying to do something. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I always say that uh, people buy my books for the recipes, but I write them for the prose. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's talk a little bit about barbecue. Mm -hmm. um, the whole I, I, I came here uh, to Dallas, Texas with my wife about 12 years ago. And we came from Southern California, before that, Northern California. And that's where I started getting kind of serious about cooking on a grill or, or smoking meats. And then I got here, bought some equipment, said, all right, I'm in Texas now. I'm going to smoke some. And the <laughs> problem is 
there's great barbecue just down the street, every street. So I don't have to get, I don't have to get too ambitious in the backyard myself. But I've learned a lot, and I, one thing, one of the things that I've learned is that uh, the craft of barbecuing meats has become immersed in legend and lore, and it seems mysterious and a little bit intimidating for backyard pit bosses. What advice do you have for people who are just trying to graduate from hot dogs on the Weber to great steaks and ribs and chicken and fish and stuff like that? Well, my first piece of advice would be to uh, buy a couple of books. And uh, one of them is the Barbecue Bible. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And another is uh, Project Smoke, which is my book about smoking and barbecuing. A third one that uh, is really good would be uh, Project Fire. Uh, my next piece of adv advice would be to go to uh, barbecuebible.com, my website, and sign up for my Up and Smoke newsletter because that comes out twice a week and that's just full of information and uh, recipes and trends and gear reviews and you name it, we do it. Um, third piece of advice, you know, uh, would be to, if you don't already, to uh, watch shows like Project Fire or Project Smoke. Uh, those are on PBS. You can also watch them at stephenreichland.com. Um, and, but finally, you know, just, just do it. Just get out, light your grill. Uh, realize that there's virtually no food on the planet that can't be grilled in some form or another. And I also include uh, ice cream in that uh, ice cream list. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> in, in uh, Project Smoke, I uh, came up with a way to smoke ice cream and smoked ice cream is absolutely astonishing. You smoke vanilla ice cream and it kind of gives you the flavor of a toasted marshmallow. It's, it's really, really something. Wouldn't surprise me. There was a uh, there was a restaurant here in Dallas until just a couple of years ago, and I don't know what happened to it, but it was called Smoke, and uh, everything was smoked. Yes, the, the barbecue was smoked. I mean the I mean the the restaurant itself was smoked. You walked in, there was smoke, and <laughs> they did everything, in uh, probably including ice cream. Now, let me let me ask you about this. What about uh, hardware? You know what what kind of what kind of uh, uh, grills and and uh, such are we? Are we looking at for the best uh, for the best product? Well, you know, if you're a newcomer to the field, uh, I would go with something like a Weber kettle grill, twenty-two and a half inch kettle. It's incredibly versatile. You can direct grill, indirect grill, smoke, spit, roast, uh, grill in the embers. Uh, uh, it's inexpensive. You know, you're in for under uh, under one hundred and fifty bucks. Um, if you you know if you want a gas grill. Uh, Gas grills are good for indirect, uh, direct and indirect grilling. They're not particularly good for smoking, but, uh, yeah. you know, many companies make gas grills in all different uh, varieties. A lot of people like Kamado style cookers, like the big green egg. Um, pellet grills are growing, you know, obviously gaining in. I was going to uh, ask you about pellet, pellet grills. Uh, yeah, you get the, get the, you can, you get good results there that you can from, you know, uh, charcoal chunks and so forth? You do. I don't think the smoke flavor is quite as pronounced uh, as you might get from a, a stick burner, you know, offset barrel smoker or a bullet smoker. But on the other hand, uh, you know, there's the convenience factor, you know, pretty much you set them and forget them. One thing to remember with a pellet grill is the lower the temperature you cook at, the more you smoke you get. You know, if you 
getting up to 350 and 400 degrees, which is good for roasting, you really won't get much of a smoke flavor. That's interesting. Didn't realize that. Yep. Um, fuel. Let's talk for just a moment about wood types, charcoals, briquettes versus chunk charcoals and various wood types. Well, I'm not natural lump charcoal guy. Uh, you know, a briquette is a composite uh, mixture that commonly contains coal dust, petroleum binders, borax, ground up wood, ground up coal. Yeah. Uh, you know, to me, it's not as pure as just lump charcoal, which is basically just wood that's partially charred. That being said, though, I mean, you should know that all the big barbecue festivals, Memphis in May, Kansas City Royal, uh, all those contestants use uh, briquettes. So the whole key to a briquette is just to make sure it's completely lit through and ashed over. At uh, first ignition process, it does put off some pretty nasty, uh, nasty flavors. But, you know, if you can use natural lump charcoal, I like it. Uh, but, wood, you want to be smoking. I, let me interject. Maybe this is the only thing I can interject here. <laughs> but if you're talking about, uh, about nasty flavors or smells or something, boy, oh boy, you got to stay away from that matchless charcoal, right? That's self-starting stuff. You know, I don't like to throw bricks at anybody. And I think right. even that stuff, probably once it's lit completely, that is coals glowing orange and lightly ashed over. Um, you know, a lot of that, a lot of those fumes and chemicals burn off. So uh, okay. anyway, I, you know, I'm not going to prescribe whatever, what you should use, but if you want to know what I use, I use natural lump charcoal. Now, in terms of woods uh, for smoking, uh, natural hardwoods, um, you know, I think oak is the most versatile and certainly the most widely used uh, uh, around the world. Uh, apple, cherry, alder, you know, uh, kind of a lot of hot air gets um, discharged about which wood is uh, superior. And when I was writing Project Smoke, we experimented and we kind of smoked the same food over different woods. And we found that, that with the exception of mesquite, there was really very little difference in the final flavor. Really? Mesquite, yeah, because mesquite kind of has a very strong yeah. uh, oily sort of flavor, you know, right. that goes great with beef. Um, but, uh, you know, I think what matters, the wood you use matters less than the way you dose the smoke. And that is you should just dose a steady stream for a long time. We guys have a tendency to sort of think, well, gee, if you're going to use, you know, uh, five pounds over two hours, let's just shorten the process and use all five pounds the first <laughs> 10 minutes. And then we, can, and that, that doesn't work, as you know. <laughs> or over season the smoke as you would anything else. Uh, yeah, well, but I always thought that um, the, the fruit woods were, were sweeter than hickory and, uh, and such. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that once you burn them, uh, that really is the case. However, don't forget there's, you know, there's an awful lot of romance in barbecue and um, the number of beers or bourbon you drink in a <laughs> grill or smoke session certainly contributes. So I'm sure after a few beers or a few, uh, few shots of bourbon, you know, you can absolutely detect the apple flavor and applewood smoke and the, you know, the, uh, hickory flavor and uh, hickory smoke. All right, talk to me about spices and rubs and sauces. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to learn about that stuff, except for, you know, your own personal preference. But again, learning about your what your personal preference are, it takes a lot right. of work. 
Yeah. Right. Well, first of all, um, by the way, just to go back to um, uh, to woods for a moment. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I should mention that I do have a line of woods. Uh, they're uh, currently branded under the um, Barbecue Essentials brand, but soon to be switching to the Planet Barbecue brand, which is the name of my line of uh, prepared barbecue that we can talk about in a minute. But at any rate, we source our uh, woods from Europe, and I think they have a really clean, beautiful elegant flavor. So just wanted to throw that out there. In terms of seasonings, you know, salt and pepper to start with. And the salt, I like a coarse sea salt. Why sea salt? Because it contains a lot of trace minerals that I think just give you a better flavor. Why coarse? Because I like those crunchy crystals of salt. I like to bite into those when I'm um, eating meat. Yeah. Pepper, always freshly ground. And what we do on the set of uh, uh, Project Fire, well, Project Smoke is uh, we grind, uh, you know, a cup of uh, peppercorns in a, in a spice mill, a coffee grinder, and then I pinch because, you know, when you're cooking, who wants to reach for the, uh, the peppercorn grinder? But there's a huge difference with um, freshly ground uh, black pepper from canned pre-ground black pepper. Uh, barbecue rubs, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the, uh, the proprietary secret to uh, to one of my barbecue rubs, it's uh, equal parts salt, pepper, paprika, and brown sugar. That's the basic barbecue rub. Great on uh, any kind of, pretty much anything. Then you can customize it instead of paprika. You can use chili powder instead of uh, pepper. You can use lemon pepper or white pepper instead of uh, regular sugar. You can use brown sugar. Uh, you can make a wet rub by using honey or molasses. Uh, you can add aromatics like garlic powder, onion powder, uh, add, add heat with cayenne pepper. But that basic formula really should should give you a couple of years of grilling. Certainly a lot to uh, think about and try out. How about sauces? The, the well, stuff we should be doing ourselves or, you know. Yeah, well, I wrote a book uh, uh, once called uh, Barbecue, uh, Barbecue Sauces, Rubs, and Marinades. Uh, it was issued a long time ago and then reissued about five or six years ago. I completely updated it. Um, you know, barbecue sauce, I mean, first of all, the sauce is no substitute for great barbecue. Right. Meaning that if you don't get your meat right and your smoke dosed right, you know, it's not real barbecue. But a great, a, a good sauce, it's like, you know, it's, it's like the accessories or the jewelry or the, uh, it, 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 it it's a perfect complement to barbecue. And sauces uh, really have a very strong regional uh, influence. So yeah. for example, uh, in Kansas City, you have a tomato-based sauce that's very smoky, uh, kind of epitomized by Kansas City masterpiece barbecue sauce. And in uh, Georgia, it's a mustard-based sauce. In the Carolina, the sauce is less a sauce and more just a liquid um, consisting of salt, vinegar, hot pepper flakes, and uh, sometimes they add a uh, little sugar to it. In the western part of the state, they'll wave a bottle of ketchup over it. Uh, but that goes great with uh, pulled pork, right? Because if you put a thick sauce on shredded meat, it's just going to become kind of gloppy. But if you put a thin vinegar sauce on, it will absorb, but you'll still have the kind of nice meaty texture and uh, chew. And then as you go around the world, um, you know, barbecue sauces change again. So in Argentina, the, you know, classic sauce is chimichurri, which is a garlic, parsley, vinegar, and olive oil sauce. 
or if you go to south to um, Indonesia or Thailand, the barbecue sauce is a peanut-based barbecue sauce that goes great with those little kebabs known as satays. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, to me, that's a very, it's a very fascinating process. And once again, you know, it's, I'm always thinking geography. I'm always thinking travel. I'm always thinking how the barbecue of a particular place reflects the culture, reflects the local economy, what grows there, what kind yeah. of food people serve there. I'm wondering if that, if that is changing. Do you, do you find uh, that um, maybe it's all becoming a, gradually a little bit more homogenized? The reason I think that is because of, of uh, you start talking about regions of the United States. It makes me think about uh, uh, dialogue, uh, you know, uh, dialects and, and accents. And here I am in Texas. And it's very hard to find a standard Texas accent near or in the big cities. If you get out in the countryside, You'll, sure. you'll hear that kind of thing, but it's becoming so homogenized. People are traveling so much more and and bringing their own cultural influences. Is that is that a fact with flavorings? Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I started writing about barbecue, uh, and actually barbecue Bible is about to celebrate its uh, 25th anniversary next year. Oh, talk about a, a uh, an amazing and scary thought, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, you really didn't see pulled pork outside of the Carolinas. Right. You really didn't see much brisket outside of Texas. Well, today, you know, barbecue joints anywhere in the United States, not to mention in Germany, in Bangkok, you know, you find brisket and pulled pork. So there, you know, I call it the Starbucksification of, uh, of barbecue. Uh, yeah. is, and homogenization is the word. Yeah. However, I, I, at the same time, I do believe that barbecue is some of the last truly regional food. And there are, you know, there, just because you have pulled pork in, in Los Angeles doesn't mean that it's going to taste the same uh, as the pulled pork you might have in the Carolinas. When we, uh, when we lived in California, uh, we discovered uh, tri-tip. Tri-tip, sure. Yeah, coming out of the uh, Santa Cruz area. And, um, we moved to Texas, and I couldn't find a tri-tip to save my life. I finally found one at a uh, at a kind of an upgrade butcher shop, and uh, and now it's in every supermarket. You know, yeah. So you know, this is this is what we do in America. Uh, we uh, we take a food, and we when we like it, we spread it all over and and uh, homogenize it and mass market it. Uh, it's funny. I was reflecting on. Um, barbecue bible you know when i wrote it 25 when it came out 25 years ago ingredients like coconut milk you couldn't find fish sauce you couldn't find lemongrass yeah. you couldn't yeah. so i had to come up with workarounds for all those ingredients and of course now today you go to your local supermarket you can but that's a that's a good thing it's really it's a, it's a wonderful thing that you know we've really brought the world to our kitchens uh, and our grills. And yeah, it's a I, I, I have a piece of flat iron steak I'm going to do tonight just because it's so easy and uh, you know can't mess it up. And it's Friday. Um, why? Why has everything gotten so spicy, spicy hot lately? I mean, mm -hmm. lately within the last few years, I've gotten to a point. My wife and I are both the both of the mind. It's like you know what? Heat is not a flavor. Pain is not a flavor. And we've gotten to a point where everything, everybody is is putting sriracha and, and stuff on everything. And it drives us a little bit crazy. Well, I, you know, I think it's uh, America's um, kind of uh, penchant for excess. And um, 
you know, uh, the power of one upmanship. Once you start looking at a, um, a hot sauce as a power play and not as a uh, seasoning, you know, it's a more than yours. Um, but I would argue that when handled judiciously, you know, there are many different flavors between the initial blast of heat and something like a chipotle chili has a smoke flavor, something like a scotch bonnet chili has a kind of a, there's a sort of floral apricot notes behind the heat. Um, Sri Racha, obviously, uh, it's what happens when you take a chili and you ferment it with salt and it has those kind of rich, almost cheesy, you know, the same kind of umami flavors you find in cheese, not to mention nice garlic flavor. Um, but, you know, a sauce just to be painfully hot for the sake of being painfully hot with ghost peppers or scorpion peppers. Yeah, I, you know, been there, done that, don't need to do it again. I would imagine that would drive the, the Francophile in you crazy a little bit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, 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 that piece, they're not really so into hot hot and spicy in France yet. What what else is going on around the world that we haven't discovered yet that's really, really wonderful? Is there such a thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm um, just kind of thinking about my uh, travels in Colombia. They have this wonderful dish called Lomo al Trapo, which I made on the um, Project Fire TV show last year. And you take a beef tenderloin now filet mignon doesn't really have much flavor uh you know it's very tender which is why people like it but for this you take a cloth i soak it in red wine mound salt on it pose the beef tenderloin on the salt wrap the whole shebang up and then you toss it on the embers of uh, the fire you cook it for eight minutes on one side nine minutes on the other it kind of cooks down to a hard shell that you crack with a knife and when you open it up, you get the most spectacularly flavorful beef tenderloin you could ever imagine. So that's pretty wow. cool. Uh, thinking about uh, Germany, they've got something called um, uh, Schwenkbraten. A Schwenker is a, a grill that's uh, it's hung from a tripod and it swings. So you cook a pork chop or you might cook a uh, well, pork is their, you know, that's their essential meat. And you put it on this grill and you wind it up and it kind of sort of spins around and swings back and forth. And it's a great way to wind up with an even heat from a mercurial source like a wood fire. You know, wood fires are not, one reason people switch from wood fires to charcoal is charcoal is a more predictable heat and it's more right. even heat. Uh, I love grilling over wood myself because I love that the smoke flavor you get from it. But, you know, talk about hot spots and not so hot spots. Yeah. I'm a little nervous doing uh, fish, anything that comes out of the water, putting it on a hot grill. Um, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the basic involved there so that you're not ruining it or burning it or whatever? Well, you need to pick the right fish for the right fire. So uh, I'm speaking to you from Martha's Vineyard and we have absolutely terrific swordfish. Now that's a firm flesh steak fish. Yeah. So that you can just put on the grill like you would on a steak. It holds together. Uh, it's fun. Um, however, if you were cooking a whole fish, like let's say you got a whole snapper like I would get when I'm um, down at my home in Miami, well, that's a very soft fish and very prone to sticking on the grill grate. So for that, you either indirect grill at home or you uh, put it in a fish basket or you use a plancha, and the plancha is something I've been using a lot more lately. It's just basically a fancy name for a cast iron griddle. 
that you put on your fire. And it enables you to cook fragile foods or small foods or even foods you normally wouldn't grill like eggs. But you can add woods to your coals so you're smoking, you're getting smoke flavor. Uh, and that's the key to fish, really, to pick the right method for the particular kind of fish. All right. Finally, and I think this is the last thing I'm, I'm thinking of at the top of my head. And if you have anything else you want to add uh, about anything, please do. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by grilling vegetables, but not just, you know, putting them a little, a little oil and throwing them on the grill. You know, what can we do that, uh, that we should try out that would be really uh, a nice, uh, a nice side accompaniment to a good piece of meat, no matter what kind we're talking about. Well, um, that brings me to my most recent book, which is called How to Grill Vegetables. And right. um, I, uh, you know, spent a lot of attention. I, I love grilled vegetables. Uh, and uh, the book is divided up in kind of a funny way. You might expect me to divide it up by vegetables. It's actually divided up by sort of appetizery vegetables, uh, first course vegetables, main course vegetables, side dish vegetables. Mm. Uh, and here too, just like fish, the key is picking the right fire for the right vegetable. A high moisture vegetable like mushrooms or bell peppers, uh, tomatoes or zucchini or asparagus requires a hot heat and direct grilling. Whereas a very firm, dense vegetable uh, like a cauliflower or potato requires either indirect grilling uh, or charring in the embers uh, or spit roasting, you can spit roast. One of my favorite things to do, you know, in the fall, you get whole Brussels sprout stalks. Yeah. Which, uh, they have maybe uh, 60 or 70 Brussels sprouts on them. I love to put those on a rotisserie and rotate, roast the whole thing and then carve the individual Brussels sprouts off at the table. Oh, that's cool. Um, like yeah, that. yeah. Yeah. But in a funny way, you know, if you think about it, I mean, a steak sort of tastes like a steak, sort of tastes like a steak, maybe yeah. a little bit more flavorful if it's a tri-tip or a belly steak, maybe a little more tender if it's a tenderloin or a New York strip. But if you think about the vegetable kingdom, on the other hand, I mean, it's just the variety of flavors, the range of flavors and textures is absolutely enormous. So uh, you'll find me always grilling a lot of vegetables. All right. I don't have... Uh... I don't have the time and you don't have the patience to have me list all of your books, all of your TV shows. Uh, maybe you could talk for just a little bit about, for a moment about the, uh, your barbecue university that you still sure. doing that in Colorado. No, actually we moved the school to South Carolina for three okay. years. Now we're, we're going to move to a new location. I don't know where it just gets too darn hot in the summer to grill. Well, at least to run a barbecue university in South Carolina. It was, Last session we did was 98 degrees, and that was before you were in the shade. Uh, but uh, for the TV shows, so I'm on public television. Uh, the current show is um, Project Fire, uh, of which we did four seasons. The previous show is Project Smoke, all of which are on the air, or you can access them through uh, stephenreichland.com. My website is barbecuebible.com. That's B-A-R-B-E-C-U-B-I-B-L-E.com. Uh, tell you about my newest venture that's kind of fun. Uh, I've launched a company called Planet Barbecue, and we do uh, frozen ready-to-heat and eat barbecue, like uh, brisket, uh, ribs. We have a Texas-style brisket, Kansas City-style ribs, a double-smoked brisket sausage. Uh, I uh, 
just got, uh, we just came out with a, uh, a brand new uh, product, which is a pastrami bacon. Now, pastrami Ooh. and bacon, two of my favorite cured smokes foods. Yeah. I had the idea to put them together to cure bacon with pastrami spices and then crust it with pastrami spices and smoke it. That sounds fabulous. Those, those are available uh, through a company called Crowd Cow, C R O U D C O W C R O Crowd C R O W D Crowd like yeah. crowd sharing cow yeah. like a cow like a steer. Okay. Um, but and that's under the Planet Barbecue brand. But you know, for so many years, I mean, people in a sense they've sort of looked into my world with whether you know whether watching me on TV or reading about it in my books or using my seasonings, not really tasting my food. And this is this was I wanted to do kind of as uh, I wanted to give people an opportunity to taste my food the way they would if they came to my house. So where can we find it? So planet bar, you know, go to planetbarbecue.com or go to crowdcow.com again, C R O W D C O W. Uh, and, uh, you know, follow the heating instructions. You can heat it on your grill. You can heat it, reheat it on your oven in the oven and you'll taste what Steven Reichen is eating for dinner. Wow. It's amazing. I wouldn't think that something like that, but I mean, you know, it's got to be fresh, right? It's got to be right off the grill, but we can do that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I have really enjoyed this opportunity and uh, I'm going to go back and, and I'm going to pull out uh, Barbecue USA to lay down with when I take my nap. And then I'm going to have the Barbecue Bible take out in the backyard while I'm doing that flat iron today. Thanks, okay. Stephen. It was nice Thank talking. You. All right. Bye.